Today we're doing another one of our Q&A Sundays and we try to do these on a fairly regular basis uh, for a number of different reasons. The first is that we want to just name that it's really good and healthy for us to be able to ask questions. This whole thing about following Jesus is about trust and is about faith and both of those things by default mean there's got to be some questions. There's got to be some doubts that we all wrestle with from time to time because these things aren't 100% guaranteed. These things aren't 100% clear. There are lots of questions that we all wrestle with. And so as a spiritual family, we want to be a healthy place to be able to wrestle with those doubts and those questions. A place where we can feel free to say, I'm not sure I understand this, or I'm not sure how this fits with my understanding of God or faith or Jesus or uh, what life is all about. And so the hope is that as we continue to do this, it continues to raise questions for us. Uh, and so inside of Caring Connection today, there is a slip of paper that says my questions or my future questions or something like that. So I want to encourage you to get that out now. So if you could all grab your Caring Connections and get that piece of paper out now, because we are kind of starting to run out of some of our questions. And I know that it can be really hard to just think of some on the spot. So my hope is that today there might be some questions that get raised for you from some of the things that we talk about today. They may be related to what we talk about today or it may be completely different. Or it may be that you did think of some questions over the last few weeks, you just never got a chance to write them down. So write them down during the message at any point today and then the Q&A box is at the back. And so on your way out today at the end of the service, I want to encourage you to put that piece of paper in there. And so no questions are out of bounds. Everything's on the table and we want to encourage you to be thinking about the things that you're wrestling with, the things that you're feeling challenged about, how things fit together and uh, jot them down and put them in the box as you head out today. Excited to say that today we're also including some questions from the kids. So last week as a part of their kind of wrap-up review week, we gave them the chance to ask some questions too. And uh, so they've got some that are included as well. So let's jump in. Our first question today is where was the Garden of Eden? What country is it in now? Reality is this is a really, really hard question to answer. And it's good for us to recognise that the Bible is not supposed to be a science textbook. It's not supposed to be a book of maps, although at times there are clear explanations about geography and a bunch of things that are happening around the place. Uh, but at the same time, we don't get definitive answers about some different things, and this is one of them. There are some indications that we do get with this, though. So Genesis chapter 2, verse 8 says, Then the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man he had formed. He made all kinds of beautiful trees grow there and produce good fruit. In the middle of the garden stood the tree that gives life and the tree that gives knowledge of what is good and what is bad. A stream flowed in Eden and watered the garden. Beyond Eden it divided into four rivers. The first river is the Pishon. It flows around the country of Havilah. Pure gold is found there and also rare perfume and precious stones. The second river is the Gihon. It flows around the country of Cush. The third river is the Tigris, which flows out of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. So, we know that there are some clear geographical things that were given, names of four rivers, for example, which should be really, really helpful, except two of those rivers don't exist anymore, and so we don't actually know where they are. The Tigris and the Euphrates, though, we do know where those are, and so we've got a bit of a map. So they flow down into uh, the Persian Gulf. So most people would say that probably the region of Eden 
was somewhere in what is now Iraq. Uh, the garden, it's important to name, is a garden that was in Eden. It's not the garden that's called Eden. Eden was a region and there was a garden inside of that that had these rivers. And so that's kind of roughly where people would say. The biggest complication for us is that we also believe that there was this massive big flood. And the problem with the big flood is that it kind of wiped everything out and changed all of the river courses and changed all of the places where geography is and all of those sorts of things. And so uh, even if that's modern day where these rivers are, there's a very good chance that those rivers were actually somewhere else uh, in the past. So it's one of these questions that we don't actually know the answer to, but that's okay. We've got a bit of a rough idea. We assume that it was probably in the Middle East somewhere around there, uh, but that's about it. Second question then, what language did Adam and Eve speak? Another very good question, which we also don't have an answer to because the Bible doesn't tell us this is the language that Adam and Eve spoke. There are a couple of things that people suspect. The first is that they spoke Hebrew, and the reason for that is because a lot of the language that's inside of uh, the creation story only makes sense in a Hebrew language. So one suspicion is that Adam and Eve spoke Hebrew because otherwise a lot of stuff doesn't make sense. There's also a school of thought that Adam and Eve actually spoke a uh, different language that was kind of predates all of our other languages and potentially even a, la a special language which meant that they could communicate with God in a more direct way. But the answer is we don't know. Now, we do know that it wasn't English, that's for sure, um, but we don't know. And it's really good for us to be able to recognise that there are questions like that that we don't know the answer to. Often they are the questions that kids ask, <laughs> uh, those two were. But it's good for us to recognise that for us we always try to stare behind things. So the fact that we don't know exactly where Eden was, the fact that we don't know exactly which language Adam and Eve spoke, doesn't mean that therefore we have to throw everything out. Because what we do know, what we do believe, is that God created the universe God created the world, God created humanity. And God's purpose in that was so that we could have a full and complete relationship with him. And so that's what we end up focusing on. And sometimes when we have these questions that we're wrestling with, it's good for us to say, actually, we don't know the answer to that question. But what we do know is this, what we do believe is this, and so let's start from that point and make our way out. All right, next question. What would a lion's den look like? How deep would it be? So this obviously comes out of us talking about Daniel in the lion's den. And so uh, a lion's den was not something that was actually built. It would have been a big cave. And in terms of where the entrance is, we don't know. Some pictures that you'll see of the lion's den have an opening in the cave that's kind of you could walk into it. Some of them have an opening in the top. Most people would say that the opening was probably in the top because we read that when Daniel was taken out of the lion's den, he was lifted up out of the lion's den and so the suspicion is that it was kind of like this where there was a big hole in the top of the cave and so they had to let down a rope or something like that uh, to be able to get whoever was in there out of it. But it would have been a cave of some sort in sort of terms of how big, we would say probably wasn't as big as this because that's a really, really big space. Uh, but again, we don't have any photos so we don't really know. But we suspect it was probably something like that. All right, next question. How much do we believe that the prophecies in books like Daniel and Revelation are true or are going to come true? 
So this question comes because uh, if you kept reading through Daniel, as I know that some people did, so there's all of these great stories that we've got in Daniel, including Daniel and the lion's den and some other things that happen. They're really, really great stories. But if you continue reading past that, it seems like it goes a little bit crazy because there's all of a sudden all of these prophecies and all of these visions that Daniel has about what's going to happen at the end of time. And so this question is helpful for us because we recognise that there is this literature in the Bible that's called apocryphal literature or end times literature that explains for us a little bit about what's going to happen at the end of time. And so Daniel and the book of Revelation in particular are the two books where we see a lot of this. And in those books, we have some very graphic and some very strange visions that people see. Uh, and so here's a couple of examples of that. In Daniel chapter 8, we read about this ram who comes in with big horns and just starts butting everything around it and destroying everything to the north and to the west and to the south and doing as it pleases. And then this ram becomes really, really arrogant because it's destroying everything. And then along comes a big goat that's got a really big horn and destroys the ram because it's even stronger. And uh, that uh, goat comes along and it also becomes really, really powerful and therefore becomes really, really arrogant as well. And so we have this imagery about what is understood now to be kings who are stepping into positions of power and leadership and destroying everything around them and then becoming really arrogant because of the power that they've got and then those kings being destroyed by something else that comes along as well. In Revelation, we read all of these images about things like plagues and fires and armies and dragons and beasts rising up and again, taking these positions of power at the end of all time. And throughout that though, there is also an understanding that what's going to then happen is Jesus will come as the most powerful and will defeat these arrogant kings who've taken these positions of power and ultimately establish his rule once and for all. That's kind of the default of what happens, particularly in Daniel and Revelation. So the question for us is to say, do we take these things literally? Do we believe they're actually going to happen? Are they just visions? Do they give us a bit of an idea? Is there going to be an actual ram, an actual goat, actual beasts and dragons rising up out of the sea? Or is it just kind of figurative language. And the reason why it's often a really important question for us is because we do wrestle with what's going to happen at the end of all time, particularly around this question of when is Jesus going to come back, which I'm sure you have probably either asked yourself at different times or heard other people talking about. And we have to be very, very careful about this because uh, when we start thinking about leaders who ascend to positions of power and that then setting off the end times, we can start to project all these things in there and say, aha, I found it. This must be the person who's going to set themselves up as the ram or as the goat or as the beast rising out of the sea or whoever it might be, which means that Jesus is about to come back. And for me, I always think back to World War II and I think about Hitler. And I think about someone rising to power and having significant influence and doing some horrendous things with that power and with that influence destroying millions and millions of people, and in particular, destroying the chosen people, destroying the Israelites. And so if you were around during that time, it would be fair enough to understand this must be the beginning of the end times. Because to live through that, you would assume it can't get any worse than that. And certainly for me, when I look at world leaders now, is there anyone who's even close to someone like Hitler? Certainly not. But 
If you were around in the early church, particularly in AD 70, what happened was that Jerusalem and the temple were completely destroyed by the Romans. And so if you were around then, you would have made the assumption, can this get any worse? Particularly a whole bunch of Jewish people were destroyed as a part of the Romans coming in and conquering everything. And there's a fairly clear school of thought that most of the people in the early church, and Paul writes this at times, assumed that Jesus was going to come back within their generation. Then in actual fact, that none of them were going to die before Jesus came back again and set up his kingdom permanently. So, it's this tricky question, and it can be complicated for us to kind of wade into too much because we can focus and get a little bit too focused on, okay, when is that actually going to happen? Jesus actually gives us a very, very clear answer to the question of whether we can work it out. And for me, I always try to go back to what did Jesus have to say about these things. And in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, Jesus says very plainly, No one knows when that day or hour will come. Neither the angels in heaven, and this is the most fascinating part for me, nor the Son, the Father alone knows. And so Jesus actually says, do you know what? I don't even know when that's going to happen. You certainly don't know. And so it's not a helpful thing for us to spend a lot of time obsessing about when is this going to happen exactly? How do we interpret all these events and say, okay, Jesus is definitively coming back tomorrow. But the reason why we often wrestle with it is because we start to think, if I knew that Jesus was coming back tomorrow, then I would stop doing this, or I would start doing this, or I would make this change in my life, or I would make sure that I had this thing under control. If I knew 100% that Jesus was coming back, then I would definitely make sure that I got that sorted out. And so the challenge that I put in front of myself is to say, if I knew that Jesus was going to come back tomorrow, and therefore I was going to make a change, I should just do that anyway because it's clearly the best thing for me. It's clearly what God wants for me and so I should stop doing that thing, start doing that thing, make that change in my life, whatever it is, regardless of whether Jesus is coming back tomorrow or not because it's just the right thing to do. Next question then. How can we trust that the miracles Jesus supposedly performed actually happened? So... Think back to a couple of weeks ago and we talked about Jesus healing the woman who was bleeding and raising Jairus' daughter. So this is a good question for us to say, well, how do we know whether those things actually happened or whether they didn't? And this is a challenging thing for us to wrestle with because we know a lot about modern medicine. We know a lot about how our bodies work. And so it kind of is a bit of a challenge for us to say, just because Jesus says a word or just because someone touches Jesus or Jesus touches someone can they really get healed just that quickly? Is Jesus actually able to perform miracles like this? So if I was having this conversation with someone, the first question I would ask them is, do you believe in God? Because if a person doesn't believe in God, there's actually no reason for them to believe in miracles whatsoever. And so when we're in conversations with friends, we want to kind of start from that point, find some common ground, find out where someone's coming from. Because in the absence of belief in God, it's fair enough that people would have an absence of a belief in miracles. That doesn't actually make any sense at all. However, if you do believe, as most of us do, in a God who created the entire universe, created the world, and created humanity, is it actually that much of a stretch for us to then believe in a God who can restore that original creation? We believe that when God created us, he created us healed and whole and complete 
without brokenness, without sickness, without disease. That's what the original design was. So is it that much of a stretch to believe that God would then be able to restore that in us? I wouldn't have thought so. When we look at the miracles that Jesus performed, they all fit within that. And we talked about this a bit a couple of weeks ago. That Jesus doesn't ever perform miracles just to show off. He doesn't perform miracles to be able to put on a big show and say, come and follow me so that I can be really, really popular. Almost every time that Jesus heals someone or performs a miracle, it's to encourage people or to restore wholeness, to restore healing in that person, to put things back the way that they're supposed to be. Tim Keller puts it this way. It's a really, really helpful quote that I found. Modern people think of miracles as the suspension of the natural order. So if you have a conversation with most people, they would say a miracle is the natural order stopping and this thing happening that's an exception to the rule. And so that's not normal. It shouldn't have happened. That's not the way the natural order works. So he says most modern people think of miracles as the suspension of the natural order. But Jesus meant them to be the restoration of the natural order. Jesus meant them to be the restoration of the natural order. Now, for Jesus, it wasn't about the natural order being suspended by this radical thing that was kind of over here. For Jesus, performing miracles was actually restoring things to the way that they were supposed to be, restoring things back to the original design, which is what we should expect. If we believe that God created us to be complete and to be whole, then it would make sense that Jesus would come along and give us the opportunity to experience that. So the bigger question then is whether we can believe exactly what's written in Scripture about the specific uh, miracles that Jesus performed. But that's not the question that was asked, so I'm not going to answer it. You can write that down on your sheets if you like. And there's also a question that we could ask about why doesn't every miracle get performed? Why doesn't healing happen every single time for people? But again, that question also wasn't asked, so I'm not going to answer it today. But you might want to write that one down on your sheets too. All right, next question. Bit of a tricky one that we're going to have a look at now. Does God send people to hell? I know, tricky one, right? This is uh, a very um, open one that's out in the media at the moment. There's lots of conversations about hell and about God sending people to hell and what does that all mean and what do we believe as Christians? And so this is actually a really important question for us to wrestle with given some of the conversations that are around. There's actually two questions in this. The first question is... What is hell? And then the second question is, does God send people there? So we want to tackle those two questions separately. First of all, what is hell? I think if we went down the street and went out onto Henley Beach Road and asked the people who were out there, describe to me what you think hell is like. Most people would describe it as lots of flames, lots of fire, lots of burning, lots of scary things happening all around the place. That's most people's default understanding of what hell is all about. And there's some imagery in the Bible that is the reason why that's how some people understand what hell is like. But in actual fact, most people's pictures of hell that are about fire and flames is far more because of Dante than it is about anything else. Because the Bible uses a number of other pictures of what hell is like. And not all of them are about fire and flame. Hell is simply the absence of God. We believe that God is love and joy and peace and contentment and all of the good things that we experience. And hell is the absence of God, which by default means that hell is the absence of love and joy and peace and contentment and all of those good things. 
Regardless of whether there are flames and fire or not, it doesn't really matter because it could just be emptiness, it could be loneliness, it could be darkness. And the Bible actually talks also about the idea that maybe the way that our eternal destiny works out if we're not a part of God's family is that we just cease to exist. There are scriptural references about that as well. And so it really depends where you're coming from as to what you specifically believe. The short answer is we don't definitively know what hell is like. We just know that it's the absence of God. We do believe that there needs to be a hell. If we didn't, we would be what's called universalists, which is people who believe that everyone is going to heaven regardless of what they believe or how they live their life. That's what a universalist is. We aren't universalists, and the reason for that is because we believe that God has to give us a choice. We believe that God creates us for the purpose of having a relationship with us. And that relationship means we have to be able to say yes or no, or it's not a relationship. If you force someone to love you, that's not healthy in any way whatsoever. And so God doesn't create us as robots or as people who don't have choice. He creates us with the ability to say, yes, I want what you have, or to say, no, I don't want that and I want to walk away. And so hell is the no thanks, I want to walk away option, regardless of what it is that that looks like. So we then come to the second question, does God send people to hell, whatever hell is like? And this is a really, really important question. Because if our interpretation of what's going to happen at the end of our lives is what I think has been presented in the majority of places in the media at the moment, if our picture of what's going to happen after we die is this, that God says when you die, you didn't measure up, you didn't quite make the grade, you didn't make enough choices in your life, you didn't live the way that you were supposed to, and therefore I'm going to send you to a place of eternal punishment. If that's our understanding of what God is like, that sends a very, very strong message to people about who God is, which is something that's really, really difficult. That's not actually the sort of God that I believe in or that I believe that Jesus shows us. Because if we frame it differently and say that at the end of our lives, we're presented before God and God says to us, I have done everything necessary for you to be a part of my family. I did everything through Jesus for you to be able to be included. But I love you enough to be able to provide you with a choice. And so if you choose to walk away, then that's the choice that you make. It will make me sad. It will grieve me. It's not my best for you. But if that's the choice that you make, then I will honour that choice that sends a very different message of what God is like. And so when we're wrestling with this question, we need to be very, very careful about what is behind what's being said and the questions that people are actually asking and the things that people are projecting onto God. Because all of us at different times wrestle with this question. We all wonder what's going to happen at the end of my life or we all wrestle with this question because of friends or neighbours or family members, particularly people who don't necessarily say that they believe in God or believe in Jesus. We struggle with this and we say, well, what happens to those people? Does God send them to hell? And the answer is, again, we don't know. We ultimately don't know what happens to any of us once we pass from this life into the next. But what we do know is that we see in Jesus someone who goes to the ultimate extremes to connect with people who are broken, people who are struggling, people who are on the margins, 
people who don't have it all together. If Jesus wanted to come just to grab the people who had their lives together, then he would have spent all of his time with the Pharisees because those people basically did live perfect lives. They obeyed the law. They made the sacrifices that they needed to make when they did mess up. They were the people who were as close to perfect as you could possibly be. And they were the people who Jesus had the harshest words for. So I want to take confidence from the fact that Jesus doesn't come for those people. Jesus doesn't come for the people who've got it all together. But rather Jesus comes for the people who are struggling, the people who are broken, the people who don't have it all together. They're the people who seem to have a special place in Jesus' heart. And he extends this amazing grace and love and acceptance to those people. And so when I think about what happens at the end of our lives, I want to believe in a God who Jesus shows us what he is like. A God who is radically inclusive. A God who has a special place in his heart for those who are broken and struggling. And in particular for those who've never had the opportunity to be able to understand who Jesus is or what Jesus came to do or what faith in Jesus is all about. We definitely want to answer this question by saying, does God send people to hell? No. We don't believe that God sends anyone to hell. Is there an option for people to choose to walk away from God? Yes. What does that look like? We don't know the answer to that. But at the end of the day, we want to get swept up in a bigger story that is about a God who is filled with love, a God who created us to be in a relationship with us and a God who's done everything necessary for us to fulfil that relationship, to be a part of his family. And so that's probably a good place for us to finish today before we move into communion. This verse, or these couple of verses, are very, very familiar to us. In John chapter 3, verse 16, For God loved the world so much that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not die, but have eternal life. But we often forget that this is actually kind of only half of the thought that's in John chapter 3. Because it continues and says, For God did not send his Son into the world to be its judge, but to be its saviour. And again, this is the challenge for us. What is the perception that people have of God? What is the perception that people have of why Jesus came? Because for a lot of people, I think they do think Jesus came to be our judge, to come and say, you don't measure up, you're not good enough, and therefore you're rejected. Scripture is quite clear that actually Jesus didn't come to be our judge, he came to be our saviour, to be our rescuer, to be the one who includes us fully in God's family, to put things right. And so that's the good news that we want to share with the people that we connect with. That's the good news that I want to have conversations with with people who don't know much about God, who don't know much about Jesus, who don't know much about the church, who don't know much about faith, which is becoming more and more the norm for the people in the culture around us. It's another one of these good questions to say we don't actually know the answer to some of these things, but what we do know is this. God created us to be a part of his family He's done everything necessary for us to be a part of his family. And the best way for us to live our lives is the way that he designed and created us to live. So let's have a conversation about that and then trust that God's judgment is always right because he loves us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for that truth that you did create us because you simply wanted to extend your family further. 
You wanted to open up to us the opportunity to experience what life is like for you as Father, Son and Holy Spirit that has existed since the beginning of time. You wanted to open that up so that we could experience that same reality in our lives and for eternity. We're so grateful for that. And we're even more grateful that you would then choose to send Jesus to be the one who rescues us, the one who saves us, the one who does everything necessary for us to be able to be swept up in your family. That it's not about us measuring up. It's not about us trying to be good enough. It's simply about us accepting this amazing gift that you give us and then being able to journey with you and to be able to trust you in the here and now and in the afterlife. And so I pray that you would continue to give us that sense of assurance that we need in our lives, that all of us at different times, particularly when we're struggling, wonder about whether we've done enough. And I thank you that we don't have to wonder about that because we can trust you that you have done enough on our behalf. And I pray that you would help us to be people who then encourage those around us to be swept up in that reality, to see you as you have shown yourself to be through Jesus to be able to pull away some of the layers and some of the misconceptions and the perceptions that people have of you and to be able to help them to see you the way that you want us to be able to see you. I thank you that in the midst of that, there are always questions, there's always challenges, there's always doubts, there's things that we wrestle with. And I thank you that we get to be a part of a spiritual family where we get to explore those things together. And so in the days and weeks ahead, I pray that you would continue to encourage us and inspire us, help us to continue to unite around you, Jesus to follow you, Jesus, but then to be able to work out the other things as we go. In your name we pray. Amen.